the internet uh, you know, is this incredible democratizing tool, right? And Kevin Kelly, who is one of the founders of Wired, where I was before Bloomberg, has this unbelievable statement that no technology has ever been invented for good that can't be used for bad, right? Yeah. And um, behind the democratization of the internet, you all of a sudden have this anonymity factor that anyone can sort of pop up and do what they want. But it's not Nobody knows you're a dog in the internet. Totally. It's that great New Yorker cartoon. <laughs> exactly. I love that, right? But, but what you have with the anonymity is it's, it's real anonymity and it's fake anonymity, right? Because when somebody really wants to find you, right, where there's a will, they always seem to find you somehow, right? Because the internet, while it exists virtually, ultimately is rooted in a physical world. Yeah. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescu, and this is my podcast, where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Our guest in this episode is Keith Grossman. At the time we spoke, Keith was the global chief revenue officer of Bloomberg Media. Keith has since joined marketing and technology group Engine as its chief operating officer. Another significant, but far more personal, development since Keith and I spoke is the addition of a brand new subscriber to the podcast. My first grandson was born on April 12 to my daughter Melanie and her husband Ron. Jake is as cute and sweet as can be and is already treasured in our family. Jake, sometimes referred to as Mighty, will join the production team as soon as he can sleep through the night. It was my daughter Melanie who introduced me to Keith. When I asked Keith to tell me what he was reading, he rattled off an impressive list of books. Keith subsequently posted on Instagram a list of 32 of the books he had recently read and recommends. Keith broke up his recommended list into five categories, six books on leadership, 13 books that challenged his thinking, five books that he characterized as You Can't Make This Stuff Up, six books that he called random and caught him by surprise, and finally, two works of fiction. The three books that we're going to discuss in this episode, Bad Blood, American Kingpin, and Red Notice, were included in the category, You Can't Make This Stuff Up. I read Bad Blood at Melanie's suggestion and American Kingpin at Keith's suggestion, and they are both extraordinary stories. Those two and Red Notice are true stories, but they read like fiction thrillers, and they all have a place in the news today. Keith, you're obviously a voracious reader. Tell us about these three incredible stories and how they made it onto your list. Sure. Well, first, Howard, thank you so much for having me on on your podcast. Uh, Every time you and I have conversation, I love chatting uh, about what we are both reading. God, I mean, American Kingpin blew my mind. Uh, Here's a book written by Nick Bilton, and uh, the individual uh, could have been Ross Ulrich, who is the main character, could have been uh, anyone that I knew. I went to Penn State, had a master's degree, came from, uh, you know, middle-class family, and uh, all of a sudden he finds himself as the uh, 
uh, head of Silk Road, which is sort of like the eBay or the Amazon <laughs> of, of crime and criminality. And, you know, not to ruin it, but it's in the news, you know, is in jail for the rest of his life. And how this actually transpired is, is an amazing story. Bad Blood, uh, you know, about Elizabeth Holmes is an incredible story because I think that you find that you have someone who's absolutely brilliant with uh, Elizabeth Holmes, but the question of um, her ascension and her desire for success and greed ultimately led to, uh, you know, a Ponzi scheme in, in a sense uh, with Theranos. And uh, it's just incredible to see sort of how far uh, people were willing to believe and suspend reality before they were, were willing to go. Um, Red Notice, though, was fascinating to me, and that was the sort of impetus of the Magnitsky Act. It was by Bill Browder, and, and what made Red Notice interesting was here was a character who had no interest to get himself involved with the Russian government and, um, and to push them. And yet, he found himself, by the sheer sort of vicinity of how he was doing business and how he was making money, um, tangled into a uh, sort of web that, you know, essentially goes all the way up uh, through the highest ranks of the Russian government. I, in all three, I mean, this is why they made it under the you can't make this stuff up <laughs> sort of category. All three, it's just one of those, uh, all three are books that when you hear that expression, um, uh, sometimes fiction, is, sometimes reality is stranger than fiction uh, come to light. And uh, I think in all three, the one consistent theme is the naivete of either the individual, that, uh, that all is good and all will work out well, or the naivete of the individual that, um, that they can get away with something. And um, it's really incredible. I, I think the one testament is is uh, all of them, uh, the people who either believe the homes of the world, believe that uh, I think that uh, individuals are good. And this is a sad story of someone who was not good and everyone giving them the blind faith. I think in the case of Bill Browder, he believed that he could um, make money in a fair and in a, in a, in a stable way against the backdrop of where he was going and he didn't realize that he was actually going into a world where the rules were not good. And I think in the case of Ross Ulrich, um, I think it was a case of um, success and uh, uh, you know, money corrupt if you don't have the stronger, uh, strong enough will. So um, when you say uh, naivete, it's not, some combination of naivete and narcissism. Because in the case of uh, Elizabeth Holmes, everything was about her and her vision, despite the facts, despite the harm she was doing to others through uh, using medical devices that were unproved. And if they were proved at all, they were proved to be operating uh, ineffectively. Um, in the case of uh, Ross Ulbrich, uh, he was a libertarian, and he had a, a very focused view on, on, on what he thought was the right thing to do, despite uh, all the rules uh, that said otherwise. And he ended up trading, uh, I guess, started, started to trade drugs on the internet, taking the view that the government should not control what we can in put into our systems, and then guns, and then body parts, and it became uh, quite extraordinary. Um, and in the case of um, 
Red Notice and Bill Browder, uh, I don't know if there was a narcissism involved uh, with him, but, but certainly if you look at the other side and uh, Putin and the senior levels of, uh, of Russia, uh, there's a narcissism as to uh, what the right thing is. And uh, he got, he, he and uh, his lawyer, uh, Magnitsky, if I'm pronouncing that right, um, got uh, entangled in it uh, with a terrible ending. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, you know, uh, that story is an amazing story in itself, and it's sort of the main story and the sub-story of Red Notice, but the sheer will of Magnitsky to sacrifice his life, essentially, in one of the most brutal, awful manners possible, as described in the book, um, is its own story. And yet it's this sort of sub-story within Red Notice of, you know, the hundreds of millions of dollars that keep getting funneled around and you know corruptly sort of shifted into the government and out of Russia and into Europe and and whatnot. Um, but that's that story by itself that that his lawyer believed so strong in the same way that Russ Ulrich believed yep. in his libertarian causes believed so strong that a uh, post uh, Yeltsin uh, Russia was a democracy that things would work out correctly and it ultimately broke him and uh, killed him. And you know he had the last laugh in sort of the legislation that passed, but just a terrible, terrible story. And the legislation which you referred to, as I understand it, uh, enables the government, the American government, to apply sanctions to Russian officials involved in human rights abuses. And, yeah. and there are efforts around the world to pass similar acts yeah. uh, in his honor and, and to protect people. So uh, in all three books, uh, Bad Blood, American Kingpin, and Red Notice, there was finance involved. Uh, there was murder involved in certainly Red Notice, uh, but American Kingpin as well. I don't recall if there was murder or there were tales of murder. American Kingpin was tales of murder. So what was crazy about American Kingpin was Ross Ulrich was convinced that he had ordered the execution right, yes. of people, but the FBI had actually just sort of fabricated it. So there's so intention was, to murder. It was intent, right? <laughs> but but it really was unbelievable to see, you know, I think that what what uh, American Kingpin does more than anything else and where it really blew my mind and, and surprised me was the internet, uh, you know, is this incredible democratizing tool, right? And Kevin Kelly, who was one of the founders of Wired, where I was before Bloomberg, has this unbelievable statement that no technology's ever been invented for good that can't be used for bad, right? Yeah. And um, behind the democratization of the internet, you all of a sudden have this anonymity factor that anyone yeah. can sort of pop up and do what they want. But nope. it's not- Nobody knows you're a dog on the internet. Totally, it's that great New Yorker cartoon, <laughs> exactly. I love that, right? But, but what you have with the anonymity is it's, it's real anonymity and it's fake anonymity, right? Because when somebody really wants to find you, right, where there's a will, they always seem to find you somehow, right? Because the internet, while it exists virtually, ultimately is rooted in a physical world. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, what's unbelievable is how what was seemingly an introverted individual, a quiet individual, became such an extroverted individual behind the cloak of anonymity. And then how that extroverted individual all of a sudden became super narcissistic and actually evil uh, yeah. over the course of the book. And I think that for me with that one particular book, what was interesting was 
you know, how he how power corrupted him over the course of the way. Whereas with Bad Blood, uh, I think Elizabeth Holmes had a chip on her shoulder from the beginning. And it wasn't that she started to see an ascension and then started to become worse and worse and worse. I think she started in a bad place and actually as the power started to accumulate with her, she just got, it just meaner, got meaner, 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 meaner. And I mean, I think that some of the examples that they have in Bad Blood with her holding people's visas hostage, you know, uh, her uh, threatening employees, her using uh, uh, her lawyer to essentially uh, quash anyone whispering about anything was, was unbelievable. Talk about paranoid. Paranoid, absolutely. And uh, you mentioned uh, anonymity on the internet and, and it doesn't exist. Ross Ulbricht was ultimately uh, tracked down because of some tag he left. He left his email on some post, inadvertently, I'm sure. But it took a um, tremendous amount of technolo technology and investigation uh, to find that. But at the end of the day, none of us are anonymous on the internet. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's a great example of you know, you have every tool on the planet to think that there's anonymity, right? You exist in this virtual world, but, you know, from, I would, I would argue that from, you know, 1993 to maybe 2010, the world was so focused on how do you take analog and turn it to bits? And then from 2010 forward, the years might be off just slightly, you know, you're beginning to realize, like, you could take the bits and convert them back to atoms. And I think that it's really interesting to see that, like, we live in a world where we're physically talking right now. Um, this conversation will be scaled digitally through your podcast to whoever wants to listen to it. And I hope you have a tremendous amount of readers listening to it. And, and I hope that they find these books interesting. And I love all of your selections, so I hope they read a lot of them. But uh, ultimately... Uh, if somebody chooses to read a book from the digital distribution of this list, it will most likely manifest itself in a physical interaction again. And so I think that what people forget is, is just because it digitizes doesn't mean that it doesn't leave a footprint in a physical world where people can ultimately track yeah. you down. Then, then I agree. I agree. And then earlier you, me you mentioned essentially offline and online personalities. And you'll hear in another of uh, my podcast discussions, Dylan Marin. Uh, who uh, I discussed educated with, actually. Um, he, he's coming out with a book that will discuss offline and online personalities, and he discusses a little bit on the podcast and how we behave, encouraging people to behave off, uh, online the way they might behave if they were going face-to-face -face with someone. And, and Dylan talks to people uh, who send him hate mail. Uh, he's a wonderful person, he's an activist, and he gets uh, mail from people, and he finds them and has conversations with them. And his, his podcast is called Conversations with People Who Hate, who hate, who hate Me. And it's, it's wonderful because he's a calming influence, and he, to a large extent, talks people down in a very constructive way. And if we are face-to-face -face with each other, we're going to be civil. We ought to be civil on online as well. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that the depersonalization that online sort of interactions provide is, is one of those aspects. I do wish, more than anything else, that uh, certain elements of uh, sort of civility in in-person interactions were uh, 
mandated or at least offered as an option on uh, online tools. The example I always give is uh, I wish that Amazon for their Alexa just had a manners mode where you could turn it on and in order for you to get what you want, you have to say, can you please, Alexa, Alexa, can you please, Alexa, thank you, right? And I think that for all the kids that are being trained on snap judgments of asking, 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 just putting in Amazon manners mode would be an unbelievable sort of tool. I love that. I love that. So another common theme, certainly uh, for Bad Blood and American Kingpin, is investigative journalism. What a testament, uh, Bad Blood in particular, uh, is, well, Bad Blood uh, very much in particular to investigative journalism. Here was a story that John Carreyrou of the Wall Street Journal found. Uh, was center of, right? Uh, that was became the most the center amazing. Of, and became right? the center of. Uh, he was under tremendous pressure. Um, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, I'll say, pressured Rupert Murdoch, that one can pressure Rupert Murdoch, uh, the publisher to squ squash the story, um, quash the story. He said no. Uh, he said, I have a confidence that my journalists, uh, my reporters will get things right. Um, there were interesting uh, complications because he was an investor as well. But having said that, Kerry Rue persisted. Uh, there were other uh, journalists uh, from the Wall Street Journal, from Fortune, from Time, if I remember correctly, uh, from The New Yorker who wrote about uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and got it wrong. One of them, I think it was a reporter from Fortune, a year later when the Carrie Rue's investigation came out, apologized and said, I got it wrong. He owned up to it. So it's a real story of investigative journalism, journalism itself, which yeah. is very important. So you, you talk about a portion of the book that I actually found one of the most fascinating, which was the Rupert Murdoch uh, uh, sort of interaction with Elizabeth Holmes. So if you haven't read the book, uh, he, he invested hundreds of millions of dollars in Theranos, owns the Wall Street Journal. She goes in and she says, this is going to ruin your investment. You're going to lose more money than anyone else. You're the single largest investor. And he literally shrugs it off. And that, for me, this moment, that first one, the first instance is where I sat back and I said, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him to be able to do mm -hmm. that. But then, if you, if you remember a few pages later, uh, the Carrie's article comes out, exposes it, Theranos falls apart. All of the investors are suing to recoup their investment and he sells back all of his losses for a dollar to write down it from a tax perspective. And that's where I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, this is the most brilliant <laughs> maneuver I've ever seen in my entire life. And uh, there was one level where my respect grew tremendously for Murdoch. And then there was another level where I realized he is playing chess while she was playing checkers. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was just masterful. And I think that you know stories like that, which, which are peppered throughout the book, which are peppered throughout all three of the books, are just absolutely incredible. I mean, that's what makes these books so interesting. To your point about investigative journalism, you know, I think that great storytelling doesn't will always exist. Um, I hope that the resources are always there for great investigative journalism, and I think that they will uh, be there because it, it, there's no way that uh, AI would ever be able to construct a narrative that is just that compelling and, and hit you 
from, from such an emotional angle in such a horizontality of, of topics and, and show how they all come together. Um, but, uh, you know, that storytelling will transcend whatever the medium is. You know, in the case of Red Notice, I read it as a physical book. In the case of, uh, you know, American Kingpin and, and uh, Bad Blood, I read it on my phone, which is why when you and I talk, I always talk in terms of swipes yes. in, as opposed to pages. <laughs> <laughs> and, and which do you like better? Or do you, so you, you had mentioned to me uh, your proclivity to swipe. And so I've put various books on my phone, which then you can read anywhere. Yeah. Frequently, I'm just carrying a book. Um, but which, do you have a preference for one or the other? No. So my the reason I love reading on my phone is um, what I've developed is the ability to micro-read. Yeah. yeah if that's yeah. a word or a term. But you know, I'm able to read as many books as I can and consume as much as I can simply because when I have it down second, I have the book with me at that spot. And I never have to worry about thinking about where is it? Did I bring it with me? Because I always have my phone with me. So if I'm in... Uh, if I'm walking to work, if I'm in a cab, if I'm literally in the elevator, I can read three or four pages and I can sort of engage with, with my passion, reading. Um, I love the physicality of a book because uh, it drags, you know, like, there's just something great about a physical book. There's something great about the tactile feel of a physical yeah. book. There's something mm -hmm. great, and, and you either have it or you don't, where you have this love for a book of the smell of a book, yes, right? Absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, but I do read most of my books digitally simply because as I travel, and, and you know this from when you traveled a tremendous amount, um, my whole goal was how do I reduce as much weight as possible. Oh, and so um, the more I can uh, shed, the easier it is to travel. And so I tend to, to have a physical book next to my bed and uh, this uh, book, whatever's on my phone, uh, with me at all times. So I just recently listened to a book um, for a particular reason. Um, uh, so Robert Caro is uh, continuously about to come out with volume five of his biography of Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he recently published something that indicates that it will be coming out, although uh, he's in his mid-80s, I believe, and uh, uh, he himself has, has indicated, who knows. But uh, I read volume four, uh, The Passage to Power, uh, when it came out, which was a passage of power from John, uh, Kennedy to Johnson at the time of Kennedy's assassination. It was a great book. I decided I should read the first three as well. Uh, but time constraints being what they are and other books I'm reading and, and work, um, I decided to... I don't think I realized how much you read. <laughs> I decided to um, uh, stop city biking to work uh, for a while and, and listen to this book on Audible. So I listened to Path to Power by Robert Carroll, Volume 1. Phenomenal book. We'll talk about that another time, but really great book. Uh, but that was Audible, and uh, I've listened to some other books on Audible. I thought it was very good. It's so translatable. I can't. Uh, I can't get into the Audible books. Uh, I tried it the other day, and uh, I'm just I'm on my phone, and so because we're in a, this will be an audio experience. Yes. Uh, I just need to make sure I can I can get. The exact actor that um, that I want to reference in this. So, I, I thought to myself, boy, wouldn't I, I read physical? I read digitally. I could multitask if I <laughs> if I read if I listen audio. And I was like, I could actually exponentially. Oh, this is how my messed up mind works. Yeah. So, 
So I was driving upstate to meet my wife and daughter, and I decided I'm going to try an audible book. And um, do you know do you know the actor um, Joe Montaigne? He's in mm. Criminal Minds. Here, yeah, I'll show you a picture of him. You'll yeah. know exactly who he's. Very heavy accent. Uh, oh, yes, yes, yes. Bronx Italian accent, yeah. right? So I listened to uh, Joe Montaigne's uh, reading of The Art of War. And I felt like I was <laughs> in like a cartoon, like uh, The Simpsons or something. The reader and is very important. I couldn't. It was great. And I've read The Art of War many times. Um, but... It was almost, it just didn't fit in my mind. And you know what I, what for me, I realized was A, the reader has to be super important on every level. B, um, I don't know what narrative my brain processes books in, yeah. but this definitely didn't hit the narrative that my brain processes right. books in. And so it didn't sit well with me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are podcasts that I love. And, um, uh, you know, they hit me for, you know, the narrative, they hit me for the, like, the content, they hit me for the fact that, I, you know, I like the voices or the, the individuals interviewing. I just, I don't know if I'm built for an audiobook, so I'm just yeah. not an audiobook guy. So, uh, I listened to Springsteen uh, read his own biography, Born to Run, yeah. and that was, I thought his voice was great for it, but it also was special listening to Springsteen. I could do that. I mean, my problem is, and, and I walked down the aisle to Promised Land, right? And, and I'm a diehard Springsteen fan. I think I would want like a soundtrack to him reading it. So it's like, so does he offer that? If he offers it as a soundtrack and he sings it, I'll totally listen to this. If you're listening on Anchor, stick around to the very end to hear a clip from Springsteen's Promised Land. All right, so back to the three <laughs> books uh, in the few minutes we have remaining. So um, the, one other thing that jumped out in these three books is there were, uh, I'll say, famous characters, uh, particularly in Bad Blood and Red Notice. So Red Notice, Bill Browder, the author, his father, was his father or grandfather? Grandfather was the head of the Earl Communist Browder, Party. Earl yeah. Browder, the head of the Communist Party of the United States of yeah. America, ran for president multiple times, mm-hmm. a notorious figure. Uh, and... Browder wasn't looking to uh, promote communism by any respect. He was a capitalist, he was a fund manager, he was making huge amounts of money. But he had a connection to Russia, which was interesting, through, through his grandfather. That was fascinating. And of course, in Bad Blood, there's a whole cast of characters. You mentioned uh, Rupert Murdoch, but uh, Henry Kissinger, and George Shultz, and John Mattis, and various others, David Boyce, uh, who were uh, involved in the story in many cases were uh, investors who didn't do their own uh, research and work. In the case of James Mattis, if I remember correctly, he had mm-hmm. somebody do the research and he just ignored it. Mm-hmm. Or, or, he or overruled it. Overruled it, is a better way to put it. Uh, but famous characters in each of these books, American Kingpin, uh, aside from Ross Ulbrich, I don't know. I not, not a lot of famous characters in American Kingpin. I, you know, there's one character in particular in Bad Blood that uh, fascinates me and deserves way more credit than uh, I think is deserved, that, that they get, which is uh, Schultz's grandson, oh, Tyler, Tyler Schultz. Tyler Schultz, yes. And I mean, you, you talk about an individual who, um, in an era where the term entitled millennial is thrown around left and right, 
he could have easily been pigeonholed as an entitled millennial, but at the end of the day, he actually was right. And what she put him through and what his grandfather put him through was uh, very sad. I mean, it was like a, an incredible sub-story. The fact that someone his age would have the um, maturity to be able to ultimately persevere through that is incredible. He was courageous. Uh, and, and agree, like, the, the sheer fact that he had courage was, was amazing. Um, the other point that you brought up that I thought was unbelievable about bad blood in particular was um, she built a board that was one of the most impressive boards in terms of accomplishments that I think anyone could ever name. I mean, to have those individuals on your board by itself, to have one of them would be a success. What's fascinating is not a single one of them had medical background or medical degree or even questioned that, that what she was trying to prove was possible or not. And they were out there espousing it. And I think what made this book so powerful was not just the fact that, uh, you know, this is a story of Silicon Valley wanting to crown a female entrepreneur in the tech space and she, you know, a billionaire and, you know, could she be a Steve Jobsian successor? Um, but also just the, the story that um, so many people could be naive to the fact that, that they didn't even know what they were pushing. They just saw the yeah. opportunity. And um, where it becomes the, this, the third sort of sub-story, or I, I would say the, of at least our conversation, but maybe the 50th sub-story of the story that, of Bad Blood that made it so interesting was the, at the end of the day, she was actually playing with a normal human being's livelihood yeah. and health. health. And she was profiting yeah. off of what every person is vulnerable towards, which is I just want to get healthy and be healthy and be safe. And the fact that she could get Theranos into CVS and the fact that... Actually, it was Walmart. It was, was Walmart. Yes, The people from Walmart were saying, but what if CVS gets it? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. But the fact yeah. that that's what's dictating health yeah. Uh, yeah. decisions in America was, was unbelievable. The fact that you know there were people who had really false diagnosis um, that could have been life-threatening is is scary beyond and um, I mean that's that's where the story to me moves from one of greed and narcissism to uh, one of just pure criminality well cor corruption yeah. Yeah, so criminality corruption so uh, you mentioned Ross Ulbrich is uh, serving a life sentence I believe he's appealing it but he's serving a life sentence uh, Elizabeth Holmes and her chief deputy, uh, Sonny, are under indictment, mm -hmm. criminal indictment, and subject of, uh, of suits. And you've got uh, the legislation in the U.S. that um, comes out of red notice. Yeah. So, interesting. So the only, you know, if you like these three books, and you've read these three books, and you're saying, what's next? I would say, read The Billion Dollar Whale on 1MDB and uh, what happens there, because that's 100% going to be turned into a movie, and I couldn't believe that that actually was true. Yeah. And uh, Black Edge uh, on uh, Stephen A. Cohen and the government's attempt to take him down, uh, and it gives you like a really interesting sort of purview into how the government pers uh, you know, perceives capitalism, how you know, uh, 
finance precedes the government, you know, uh, and and how they interact with each other. So, and so each of these books uh, that you refer just referred to, the books we discussed, uh, some are already uh, subject to documentaries uh, being made into screenplays. Uh, Bad Blood is now the subject of a podcast. There are lots of ways to consume this, this information. So this is great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank Thank you. It's always a pleasure. It's terrific. Thanks. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. Our website also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And, of course, Carol is my muse, as well as my affiliate manager. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests. Thanks also to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments, either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.